This is Redemptive Revolution, restoring hope to the formerly incarcerated. I'm Nick Arnold. Addiction is a real problem in America today, and we need more real solutions to begin turning the tide. Not only does addiction destroy families, but increasingly it can land people behind bars. Today I'm sitting down with C.B. Barthlow, who is the new teaching pastor at the Denver Dream Center. We are recording at the historic Asbury Methodist Church building in the Low High neighborhood of Denver. This building plays an important role in CB's story and his path to recovery and mission. CB, thanks for sitting down with me and sharing your story today. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, uh, you say at the age of 30, uh, you were homeless, jobless, and alone. Uh, but from outside appearances, you were doing pretty good uh, in your late 20s. You were the director of MGIV, which, as I understand, came to prominence during the earthquake of Haiti as a donation platform for the support effort. So how did things change so fast for you? Well, uh, like a lot of people who deal with addiction, it was a gradual process from uh, experimentation to full-blown addiction. And um, one of the things that people who deal with addiction learn to do is cover up well. Um, so I, I had started doing drugs um, heavily in 18, 19, 20 years old. Uh, and I learned how to manage it, how to cover my tracks, how to make sure that people didn't know. And, and, and as my progression, uh, as my addiction progressed, so too did my career and my life. Um, and, and in that time I got married, I had kids, I started a career. And um, it wasn't really until it was too late in the progress of my addiction before I realized I needed help. Um, at, at the age of 30, uh, my addiction had, had finally cost me enough. Um, my wife at the time was done. She left. Uh, she took custody of my kids. Uh, my job had caught on. I just couldn't manage it well enough. I couldn't hide it anymore. I was sick all the time, uh, calling in sick or showing up late. My office was a mess. My performance was, was tanking. And, and finally they let me go. And there was a season there. It was, um, it was March, April of 2010, where everything I had managed to hold together had finally crumbled. And, um, you know, the interesting thing is, is that uh, my God and the relationship that I had with my God never wavered. I always had something. Uh, no matter how far away I got, I still was able to talk to God and to pray and, and, and still felt like I was connected to Him. Not well, but still connected. Um, and the night everything changed was, um, I'll never forget, it was, it was May 4th of 2010. Um, my my ex-wife then would allow me one night a week with my kids. So she would bring them over at uh, about 6 p.m. My job was to feed them, get them in their pajamas, get them to bed, and then take them to daycare in the morning. Um, and on those days, I would do whatever I could not to get high, just so that when I had them, I was sober. And if you know anything about crystal meth, which was my drug of choice, um, if you don't do the drug, you can't really function. I was, it, it, depression comes over you, anxiety, and really fatigue. I mean, I, I would go days on end without sleeping, and then on that day, try not to use the drug, and so I would sleep all day. And, and um, she brought the boys over, and I, I put them in their little footy pajamas, and I made some hot dogs, and, and really the only thing I could do was lay on the couch and fall asleep. So what I did was I put on one of their favorite movies at the time, uh, Finding Nemo. And so if you know anything about this, this story, um, Essentially, this little fish gets disappears, and his father goes on a hunt to find him. And along the way, he finds this other fish, who's voiced by Ellen DeGeneres, and she's just a goofy, 
goofy lady, but one of the one of the lines that this fish says is just keep swimming. And they the boys loved this story. So I put the movie on and I, I got them their dinner and I, I laid down on the couch and I fell asleep. And I woke up and I, I just had a moment of clarity. I looked around and I realized and I wasn't I wasn't of much good to my kids, to my family, to the world. And I had a moment where I, I, I decided, you know, maybe maybe it is best if I just leave this world, if I die. And I, I started to make a plan. And so uh, laying on the couch, tears streaming down my face, I remember making a plan that in the morning I would take my boys to daycare and I would drive back home and I'd park in the garage and I would just leave the car running until it was over. And I fell asleep crying and I remember crying and thinking, this is real, I'm actually gonna do this. And I fell asleep. And I don't know how much time had passed, but uh, a little while later I woke up and, um, and my, my sons were standing over me and they were four and two at the time. So, you know, they didn't, they didn't know really what was going on, my, on in my life, but they were pushing me awake. And I, I woke up, I kind of wiped the you know, dried tears out of my eyes and, and they both together in unison stood over me and they said, just keep swimming, daddy. Just keep swimming. Wow. And, um, you know, you may take that for what it is, but for me in that moment, it was a very clear clarion call from God who said, um, I'll use whatever I have to use or whoever I have to use to get your attention, but you're not going to live like this. I made a phone call that night, and the next day I was in rehab. Wow. It was incredible. That's yeah. great. Yeah. Wow. And, and so... Let's just sit for a moment just a little bit with the addiction. What do people not understand about people who are struggling with addiction? Well, I think that the world is starting to understand that it is a disease. It's a brain disease. Um, addiction really hijacks your brain stem. And um, once it's taken its hold, the impulse to use is as strong, and there's plenty of research to, to, to back this up, it is as strong as any other sort of instinctual activity like breathing, eating, sleeping. So the addict, once addicted, is really at the whim of the addiction, not the other way around. Um, and I, I can tell you from experience, and I've heard this more often uh, from other addicts, is it's like you're drowning and no one can hear you. Mm. Um, every addict I've ever met is hopelessly and desperately afraid of what's going on and would do anything to get help. But when, when addiction takes over and when your brain stem is hijacked, the idea of not using drugs is the same as if I were to say your life can get better, but you're going to have to hold your breath forever. Hmm. You understand that's yeah. not possible. So when you see shows like Intervention or you hear about people trying to get their life clean and they don't want to do it, it's not that they love being a drug addict. It's I don't have a model for how to live without the thing that keeps me alive right now. Um, and I and I wish more people knew that. Yeah, especially I mean, lately in the news is the opioid addictions and everything. But commonly you hear people saying, "Oh, well, they just need to stop, or they just need to you know, change something in their life and, and and stop doing that." But that's not really helpful for people, is it? No, and I mean, you you hear that all the time, especially with people who are close to the addict. Um, you know, if we've all come from the same background. Why are you different? 
Um, the common misconception is that addiction is a character disease and not a brain disease. It has to do with your willpower or you just like to do wrong things. Um, and that stigma is a self-perpetuating prophecy. If I've been labeled as a bad person, I feel bad about myself, the only thing that takes that pain away is actually using drugs and my addiction gets worse and worse. And the same is true of, of even tangible activities in our life. When I was an addict, I was a bad person and the things I did were bad. I had to steal and lie and cheat and, and, and compromise my values in order to get the drug that I needed. And those things were traumatic and hard to deal with. And the only thing that made those feelings go away was more drugs. And so it, 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 it was progressive and it always got worse. Yeah. And um, did you spend time in jail? I was arrested 14 times. Okay. One year, 11 times. Um, so I did many, many nights in jail. Um, and the interesting thing, I, I, I work, you know, now with folks in corrections and, and my, every time I was arrested, it was for a traffic violation. Um, because as an addict, I was irresponsible. So I, I always had a revoked license, expired plates, uh, no insurance. And right around the time I started to get arrested was where a lot of the police departments in the Denver metro area had adopted license plate reading technology. So this is a device within the vehicle that scans all license plates and raises a flag when one of those vehicles is driven by somebody with a revoked license or the tags are expired or they don't have insurance, all those things that I had. So I would routinely get pulled over. Um, and then I would go to jail for the night and then bail out on, you know, PR bond or a hundred dollar bond, um, and then never go to court. Hmm. So there would always be a warrant for my arrest. Um, and that happened over and over and over again. And in fact, even when I was in recovery, I didn't have a license for like four years. Wow. Cause they, they don't let you have it right back just cause you <laughs> right. say you're sober, you <laughs> yeah. know? So it was a lot, a lot of work. Um, and I'm thankful that I never was arrested for the things I did. I mean, I was arrested for traffic violations. Um, I was never caught with, uh, you know, any large amounts of, of um, drugs, any paraphernalia. I was never caught stealing or selling um, or any of those things. And that, to me, is proof of the grace of God. I, I, of course, should be incarcerated for far longer than I ever was. More than one occasion, I would be pulled over and they would get a dog and the dog would come smell the car. And for some reason, they didn't find the dope. Wow. Um, all the time. Um, and I remember thinking like, well, either these dogs are not very gifted or, uh, something else is, is taking place in my life right now. Cause I mean, if you were a cop for some of those things, you could be facing 15, 20 years. Oh, easily. I mean, um, on more than one occasion I had, uh, close to an ounce worth of methamphetamine. Uh, and I was just a runner. I wasn't a dealer. One of the ways that I was able to get my supply is to be the idiot who drove a large amount from one part of town to the other. Um, and I didn't get caught and that would have at least gotten me at least a sentence of five years and certainly serving two to three. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So let's talk about your road to recovery. You made the decision that uh, you weren't going to live this way anymore. You got yourself into a rehab program. What did life look like for you trying to break that addiction? Well, there's a phrase in recovery that says when you've suffered enough, you'll change. It's sort of a play on the old adage of uh, hitting rock bottom. Um, and if you ask every addict, their rock bottom is different. Some folks get a DUI and that'll do it. And then some of us have to live under a bridge for a couple years. And um, when, I, when I realized um, that God didn't want me to kill myself, I thought, okay, maybe this is the end of my suffering. And I went to rehab and um, 
I realized I, I went to the, the number one at the time, the number one rehab in the country. Um, it was a $30,000 per month facility. And I didn't have that money. But a family member who I didn't know very well paid for me to go. And, um, and I took that as a gift. And if you get a really important gift, you ever watch these home videos of kids during Christmas, that is how I treated this gift. I ran to rehab. They told me to jump on one foot, I jumped on one foot. Barked like a dog, I barked like a dog. I didn't care. I realized this is probably my only shot. Um, and I did whatever, whatever they asked me to do. I did 30 days in treatment. I got out. I did 90 days of outpatient treatment. I did uh, six months of intensive behavioral therapy, 18 months of working the steps of AA with, uh, with multiple sponsors multiple times, two years of um, counseling, and um, all the while, um, you know, humbling myself with service to my church, um, working jobs that were far below my skill set, but perfect for my heart condition. Um, and really, God, God gave me one gift of grace during that process, which was, this is the process, and it's worth it. Um, and, and I think a lot of the things that you find, a lot of, a lot of times you meet addicts and, and they're frustrated with the process. And um, the best piece of advice I can give them is fall in love with it. Because in hindsight, I look back and I think, God, I wouldn't change a thing. I wouldn't change a thing. I wouldn't change living in my parents' basement. I wouldn't change having to work so hard to convince people I was sober. I wouldn't change taking a random drug test every week just to show my ex-wife and the courts I'm doing it. Um, at the time, I wasn't fun, but I wouldn't change it because it made me something different. And um, I think too many of us, we get sober and we think we're done. And there's so much more to do. Um, and so the process is difficult, but I really enjoyed it. I really did, strangely enough. At what point did you think to yourself, okay, this is actually working for me. This is actually, I'm actually going to get out of this. I, I knew, you know what? I knew the fourth day in rehab. Okay. I knew it. Um, I walked in, first day in rehab, kind of a tough guy. Uh, they go around the circle, everybody introduces themselves, new people I have to speak. And I said, I'm here, my name is, my name is CB, and um, I'm just here to get better. I'm not here to make friends. I thought that was set the gauntlet for me and people would know I wasn't to be messed with. And the room erupted in hysterical laughter um, because they'd seen this guy before. Um, and, and I tried to fake my way through the first day and then somebody who was older and had a more grizzled story than me said, hey, if you just shut up and surrender, you'll win. And the next day I tried that and a light clicked on. Um, in the past when I had tried to kick methamphetamine on my own, the withdrawal is severe. Methamphetamine is, some would argue this, but, but there's substantial evidence to suggest that methamphetamine is not actually a chemical addiction, it's a psychological addiction. Mm. Your brain thinks that you need it. And so the withdrawal that comes with uh, kicking meth is physical, but it's in the form of depression and anxiety and lethargy. And so that's one of the reasons people go back to it is because the depression kicks in so heavy. It's not like you get violently ill, like an opiate addiction. Um, and so in the past when I would try to kick, I would be so depressed, I'd be so anxious, I'd be so in my head that I couldn't do it. And all of a sudden, I'm in rehab in three days, and I haven't experienced a single ounce of addiction, I mean of, of withdrawal, nothing. Um, which is weird, because I should have been having a tough time. And I remember thinking, okay, something's changed here. 
The interesting part about that is that when I first got to rehab, the day I went, I went to my dealer's house and I got high because I was like, well, you know, we're going to go out and blaze, right? So I, I got high. I got on the plane. I landed um, in Salt Lake City. I got to the detox facility and the first thing they do is they take your blood. So within, and that blood will measure any number of chemicals between, you know, uh, the last hour and the last seven days. And in the last seven days, I had, uh, I had drank, I had used um, marijuana, cocaine, crack, methamphetamine, and um, like a synthetic opiate. So I was pretty sure they would they'd be, you know, I'd, I'd be the sickest druggie that walked in, right? Um, and they took my blood and they, uh, they came back and they said, why are you here? And I said, what do you mean? I'm, you know, I'm in rehab for any number of reasons why I'm here. And they said, well, we just took your blood and um, there's nothing in your blood. Oh my gosh. And I remember thinking, well, then they've made a mistake. But by the third day, I didn't have any withdrawal. And by the sixth day, I was like the leader of the Lost Boys. I was really buying into the process. And um, I look back on that now and I realize that what I really needed to do, and this is a bit of a spiritual thing, so if your audience is not super hyper-spiritual, they may not think this, but God was waiting for me to make the first step. And He did everything else. Hmm. Yeah. And speaking of God, you uh, somehow became a pastor Somehow. Tell me about that. Well, like I told you, early in my recovery, um, part of the process was me getting connected to a church. Um, and I, I had found the Potter's House Church actually when I was in active addiction. Uh, they had a kid's ministry and I had kids. So I brought them. And I remember the first day I sat down in that church, um, the worship had started and I started to cry. And not a dignified church cry. I was sobbing uncontrollably, like snot bubbles in the whole nine. And I couldn't stop. For 90 minutes, I cried like that. And, and I thought it was weird, but I went back the next day. And I went through the last two months of my addiction. I went to church pretty faithfully. And every single time I was in there, I was like that. I sobbed uncontrollably. And, um, and later on, I had a lady tell me that's because um, your spirit was, was just grieving its distance from the Holy Spirit. So when I got out of rehab, I was like, well, that seems like the right place to go. So I just got plugged in. I, I was a former musician, so I started to sing in the choir and stack chairs and mop the floors. And over the course of a year of doing that, the pastor at the time asked me to coffee. And he's a bit of a high-profile pastor, so that was kind of outside the norm. So I jumped at the chance. And um, he took me out to coffee, and he said, this may sound strange, you know, a long conversation. But at the end, he said, this may sound strange, but I feel like you're called to preach and if you want to try it, I'd be honored to help you. And it was the weirdest thing I'd ever heard because I had never thought of that. But I thought, well, it's worth a shot, right? This guy's a famous pastor. Uh, he must know. So I gave it a shot. And the same model that I used in my early recovery was the same thing I used in my tutelage or my, my learning in this instance was whatever they said to do, just do. And um, I went from you know, just regular guy sort of serving, volunteering as best I could to, they gave me a microphone and had me host like a pre-service TV show. Um, they let me lead worship. Then they put me in Bible uh, classes and then they ordained me as an elder. Then I stepped into a role leading a small group and then a larger group. And then they had me preaching on Wednesdays. And it really was just like, whatever they want me to do, that's what I'll do. And in the process, I, I discovered a gifting I never knew I had and a heart for people I didn't know I had. And the interesting thing is, is that in that process, the people I found out that I fell in love with, the people I'd die to serve, was super broken people. 
I love church folks, don't get me wrong, but I don't fit in very well with them. I ruffle people's feathers once. I have tattoos. I, my language is not the best sometimes. Um, and, and, and I don't totally understand all the principles of super holiness, but I do know what it, lo- what it feels like to be in hell, and I'm not afraid of hell. So I love to race into hell and grab as many people as I can and run out. And it turns out that's who I am. That's who God always wanted me to be. And um, that process of surrender actually allowed me to discover me. And in hindsight, now I look back and I realize like, oh, the whole addiction thing wasn't an accident. That was his plan. Because there's a million people who are suffering from addiction and no one knows what their life is like. Yeah. And so how did you find yourself connecting with Denver Dream Center and making that transition from Potter's House to, uh, to becoming a pastor here? Yeah, so um, while I was sort of growing my faith in my ministry, I was also bivocational. I had stepped back into the corporate world, um, taken a job in advertising, uh, moved my way up the ladder, so to speak, and, and was doing a little of both, uh, advertising during the day and ministry at night. And one of the things that I had done is that I had built a young adult ministry at the Potter's House Church, and, and one of the core tenets of that ministry was outreach homeless outreach, working with kids, and, and working with marginalized populations. And so I had, um, I had connected with Pastor Brian, who runs the Denver Dream Center, about a volunteer opportunity, and I brought a whole batch of our young adults into a halfway house to lead a Bible study. And that's how we met. And it was an awesome, awesome time, and, and really felt a kingdom connection with Pastor B. And, and, and that was in early 2017. And then, um, you know, we progressed, and, and I got a better job in the corporate world, and and somewhere in September, um, I heard God tell me, you're done in both realms. Wow. Um, it's time to leave the corporate world, and it's time to leave the Potter's house. And I prayed. Uh, I had just secured like the largest, best job I'd ever had. I was traveling all the time. I had a personal assistant, expense account, you know, 100K salary. I was like, no, maybe I've heard wrong from the Lord, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, but I couldn't shake the nagging feeling, and I felt the need to talk to my pastor um, and say, this is what I feel like God's calling me to do, which is step out and, and lead people out of hell. And I don't know what that sounds like yet. And, and I was gracious. My pastor said, go for it. We're with you 100%. The world needs you. You're bigger than where you are right now, and it's, it's time you've served faithfully. And I woke up one morning, and, and God told me to call Pastor B. And so I sent him a text. I said, hey, man, let me know if you have time to chat today. And he called me right away. And crazy, he said, if you're calling to tell me that you want to take over our small church service and become the pastor of these people, the answer is yes. And I was like, well, and I guess I'm going to see you on Monday because that's why I had called him. And it was one of those things where like God just talked to everybody in my life about the same thing and said, this is what's going to happen. And it was a seamless transition. I turned around to the church. Church gave me their blessing. I turned around to Pastor B. He said, great, here's all the work, go for it. And, um, and in October, beginning of October, we jumped right in. And uh, been going a thousand miles an hour ever since. That's amazing. Yeah. And so what's it like for you to like, actually pastor a people who are homeless, addicted, coming out of prison? What's that like for you stepping into that, like it's, full, full into that? Yeah, that's actually the easiest part. Okay. As interesting as that sounds, um, 
The, one of the biggest things I think that the body of Christ is for, forced with or facing or challenged with is um, a disconnect between those that have and those that don't. Um, you hear it in the arguments from young adults or millennials is why they don't go to church is because they feel judged. Um, and, and then the argument from perhaps you could say the old guard or, or the folks who come from a more traditional background, which is these young people, they have no respect for God. There's this disconnect between those who understand the rules of religion and those who are just looking to live. And um, I will, I'm from the latter camp. I was trained in, in the former, which is here's how we do church. But I am the kind of person that is like, we can probably get rid of all the rules if we just lead people to Jesus. And so, you know, right when I started here at the Denver Dream Center, I jumped into several halfway houses leading Bible studies and discipleship programs and watching these guys get saved and then like discover their purpose. And then working with single moms and working with families in transition and, and young offenders and other people in various addictions, like that's the easy part is like, I know you're hurting. I was too. I know the answer. I'm not the answer, but I know him. Let me introduce you to him. The challenging part is building a church or building a body of believers filled with people who have the same heart as me, but maybe not the same background. The, the church that we're trying to build right now is, um, is the Acts 4 church, which is led by a whole group of disciples who are probably not totally qualified to do what they do, but are dedicated to giving it a shot. And uh, one of the things you hear amongst the, the church in, the, in Acts 4 is that they just gathered people, people who had and people who had not, and they literally served as like merchants, like let's, let's help those who don't and, and pull from those who do, and let's continue to point vertical. And, um, and that's the challenge. So, you know, we just had our, our, our largest um, service last week, and, and um, 20 people came to meet Jesus for the very first time. And, and I taught about Zacchaeus, and at the end of the message, I said, here's the deal. Because uh, our population currently is half and half. Half the clients that we serve, the people in need, and half people from the community, volunteers, people from other churches who are just intrigued by the vision. And I stood in front of that church, and I said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to build the church that God wants. People who are committed to all of the things we're called to do and don't mind sitting next to somebody that doesn't look like them, doesn't talk like them, comes from the other side of the tracks, has maybe been incarcerated, like that's the church we're going to build. And I said, essentially, if you don't like that, you can go. Um, and remarkably, no one left, right? It's, you should never say that as a pastor, right. like you should leave. But to me, I'm, I'm so committed, like, to building a non-stratified church. That if you feel uncomfortable because the person next to you smells bad, you should leave. Because I'm never asking that person to leave. Never. Actually, they get the front row seat. Sure. Um, and I think that God honors that, because that's his heart too. So um, the work is, is not hard with the people who need help. The challenge is working with the people who don't need help. Yeah. And, and how are you helping people who don't have that background who are coming in, wanting to, to be on mission, wanting to have a heart for, for people who are struggling. How do you, what advice do you have for them to, to learn, to understand what God is doing and to step into this? Yeah, I mean, I point to, to scripture um, and, and, and the life of Jesus nonstop. He said, I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick. 
um, when he rescues Zacchaeus, he sees Zacchaeus even though everybody hates Zacchaeus. He calls Zacchaeus by his name, by his real name, which means pure, even though Zacchaeus is a tax collector. He sees a corrupt man and he calls him pure. Um, and he says over and over and over, I came to rescue the lost and heal the sick. And I continue to point people that we are not here to uh, be more holy. We are not here to be more prosperous. We are not here to be more famous or righteous or any number of these other things that, that, that we might learn in this practice of religion. Though God will do that in your life, what we're here for is the Great Commission, which is to go out into the world, grab people, and bring them to Jesus. And because that is the core of my life and my message, it's hard to argue that. You know, it really is. People might say, you know what, you wear skinny jeans or holy jeans or you have tattoos or, um, you know, you hang out with these people. And I remind people like, yo, that is what Jesus did. So if you have a better model, let me know, but I'm going to follow this one. That's great. Yeah. I love your story. And I wanted to wrap up. Um, we did mention at the beginning here that we're at uh, the historic Asbury Methodist Church in Lohi. This isn't just a place that is a part of your future now. This was a place that uh, was a part of your past too. Can you kind of tell me what this building meant to you before? Yeah, it's a crazy story. Um, I used to, when I worked at MGIV, I, I worked one block away from here. And my drug dealer actually lived about five blocks west of here. And so every day I would, I would go to work and I'd drop my stuff off and walk over to my drug dealer's house. And on occasion he would be out, which meant I would have to go to his dealer's house. And his dealer actually lives about two blocks from here. So I would pass this church when I walked to his dealer's house. And the interesting story is that my dealer would allow me to get high at his house, and then I would go back to, the, to work. But this guy did not, which meant I would have to buy and then find a place to use before I got to my office. And this church was on the way back to my office, and it was abandoned at the time. And there's a side door on the east side of the building um, that I was able to just kind of crack open. And I, I would get high in this church before I walked back to my office. Um, and as a Christian, I was raised as a, as a good Christian, and it would hurt me to do that. I mean, I was like heartbroken, but I had to get high. Um, and I kind of forgot about this building. And then about three years ago, I was in this neighborhood, and I drove by this church. And God, I very clearly heard him say, stop and get out and touch this building. And I thought it was me, I needed to have a moment with God of forgiveness with him. Repent for what you've done inside my house. And I walked over and I put my hand on the building and I very clearly said, heard God say, I'll give you this building. And I was like, okay, that's, that doesn't make any sense. Um, but it felt real. Like it felt like, oh yeah, this is mine. And, and I forgot about it again. And then um, when I talked to Pastor B, I didn't even know they were in this building. So I took, took the position and then I said, well, where do I go? And he said, oh, we're over off this street. I was like, that sounds familiar. And I walked up to the building and I, I mean, I lost it. I was like, oh my God, this is the building where I used to do destructive things. And it's also the place where he gave me. And it's also the place where I will bring people who do destructive things to find their inheritance. I mean, it's, it, it's all comes full, full circle. Um, and, and it was so interesting to me because there's nothing that we can do. I say this all the time that, that changes God's mind about us even the things we think are unforgivable. And to me, I thought that getting high in a church was unforgivable. And yet he's like, oh no, that's the church that I'll use to help you find other unforgivable people and I'll rescue them. 
It's amazing. Yeah. What a powerful story of redemption. Yeah, that's Thank you. great. Thank and, you. And I'm just so excited that uh, you get to play a role in redemption for the people that are stepping through this door. So I am too. Uh, um, it, it is truly an honor to, to, to get to do this. You know, gang members and, and drug users and drug dealers and, and you know, people whose, whose life seem to be dictated by a lack of hope and a future. And walking alongside them, watching them discover their hope, um, is just about the raddest thing you can do. It really is. That's great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I uh, really appreciate it. You can connect with CB at his website, cbbarthlow.com. That's C-B-B-A-R-T-H-L-O-W.com. And if you're in the Denver metro area, please come see the great work that CB and the Denver Dream Center are doing uh, with people on the margins. It's just amazing. I'd like to hear from you as well. You can connect with me on Facebook or Twitter. Just search for Redemptive Revolution. There are also lots of great resources at our website, redemptiverevolution.com. Check it out. And if you're a brother or sister rebuilding your life after incarceration, we would love to hear your story. You might even get profiled on the show. Until next time, my name is Nick Arnold, and this is Redemptive Revolution. Redemptive Revolution.